welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So today, back joining us for a second bite at the apple, we've got Joel Simons. Joel is an advanced practitioner in pre-hospital critical care based in Edinburgh. He's had a pretty varied career in the past. He's worked as a nanny, as a pyrotechnician, as a children's actor, as a civil servant, and then ended up joining the ambulance service in 2005. And even since joining the ambulance service, he's bounced about a little bit, worked in motorcar racing, in search and rescue, done some education and research type work, and potted around both across Scotland and all over the globe. He's been one of the first tranche of critical care practitioners to be employed by the Scottish Ambulance Service. And he's going to chat to us about that role and where it came from and, and really what the ACCPs can really bring to difficult pre-hospital jobs. Joel, welcome and thanks so much. For Dave, thanks very on. much. It's great to be back. <laughs> what are you? Sure. So I am an APCC. I am an advanced practitioner in critical care working for the Scottish Ambulance Service. And I am part of a group of advanced practitioners who have recently come online within the Scottish Ambulance Service in various different disciplines. Okay, so where did this all come from? Because it used to be fairly straightforward. You had technicians and paramedics, and there seems to be lots of new terminologies, new phraseologies, new specialisms. Yeah, there absolutely is. You're right. So the concept of an advanced practitioner is one which has been around in healthcare for a reasonable amount of time. Um, but it is relatively new to the ambulance service, certainly up here in Scotland. And as I said, we have advanced practitioners across Scotland in various different disciplines. But I particularly work with the critical care end of the clinical remit. So I'm part of the Southeast APCC team. So we are based out of Edinburgh and we are ably complemented and supported very much by our colleagues who are based in the West who complete a very, very similar role, and also by the North team based in Inverness, working alongside PICT. So there's a real spread of these skills and staff around the country, trying to cover as much of a geographic location as we possibly can. The APCC role really emerged through the work of the Scottish Trauma Network, which I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of. And the plan for the Scottish Trauma Network was to deliver this unified network across the whole country of delivering really high quality trauma care to critically injured people and seriously injured people from the point of their injury right through to you know discharge from rehabilitation at the other end of their care journey if you like now you're absolutely right back in the day we had ambulance technicians and ambulance paramedics and clinically if you got an A&E vehicle arriving, that was pretty much who was likely to be on there from a sort of clinical care point of view. And those teams and those crews were supported very well by what we would refer to as red trauma teams. And these red trauma teams are Medic One in Edinburgh, uh, Scottstar West in Glasgow, Scottstar North in Aberdeen, and Tayside Trauma based out of Dundee. And these trauma teams are consultant-led, consultant-driven, pre-hospital trauma care services. So before the emergence of the APCCs, 
we had ambulances and we had red teams. And, you know, we equally had basics doctors and other basics personnel who would come in and fill in some of those gaps in between. But there was quite a gap between the care that could be delivered in an ambulance and the care that could be delivered by a red trauma team that arrived. And one of the projects that emerged out of the Scottish Trauma Network was to try and develop something which fit in the middle there. So that brought in a little bit of kind of professional fluidity and started breaking down some of those kind of skills barriers between that's a paramedic skill and that's a doctor skill and realizing that actually we could blur the lines quite well in between. Now, within the trauma network, we refer to red, yellow and green trauma cases. And this is slightly confusing because in the ambulance service, we also refer to green, yellow and red jobs. So in the ambulance service, a red call is an immediately life-threatening situation. A yellow call is slightly less serious, more moderate, and a green call would be a non-emergency clinical picture. In the trauma network, though, green trauma is trauma which is best dealt with by an ambulance crew. Yellow trauma is trauma which may need one of these sort of in the middle skill sets, so delivered maybe by, by uh, a basics responder or by somebody like myself or one of my colleagues. And then red trauma cases would be responded to by those red trauma teams, those hospital-based or dedicated, in the case of the, uh, the West teams, uh, those red consultant-driven trauma teams. So it is challenging because we talk about green trauma cases and within the ambulance service, a green trauma case would be a cut finger, you know, a bruised knee, uh, you know, a sort of non-emergency problem. Whereas within the Scottish Trauma Network, you know, a green trauma case is a case that will be dealt with by a double crewed ambulance. And that could be, uh, you know, a very serious injury, uh, depending on how it's made up. So one of the drives behind the Scottish Trauma Network was to try and, and link up all of that care and make sure that patients could get the care that they needed when they needed it. And I think it was becoming quite obvious, and, and I'm sure many of my colleagues from the ambulance service would recognize this, that there are calls where you definitely need a red team. You know, I definitely need this patient to get blood. I definitely need this patient to have a pre-hospital anesthetic and RSI here on the roadside. And then there are cases where they go, I definitely don't need any senior help. I've got this sorted. I can deal with it. Everything's fine. But then in the middle, for a very long time, there were patients where we'd go, I just can't get their pain under control. Or actually, do you know what? I just need to sedate this person a little bit. Or this person has had, say, a traumatic cardiac arrest. Say, uh, you know, a blunt trauma cardiac arrest. And we are quite unfortunately realistic when we look at blunt trauma cardiac arrests. We think it's probably not going to be survivable given the data. But the only option in those situations was to activate a red trauma team. And given some of the locations that we were working from, that involves taking a consultant off the ED floor. And while ambulance crews and we are always thrilled to see our red trauma team colleagues turn up, certainly off the back of the work that, that I now do, I've gained much more of an insight into the real challenges that that creates for the department that that team have left behind. So as an APCC, our job is to fill in that gap, is to straddle those two sort of care packages and start to deliver those interventions that fall into that yellow category in the middle. That's really interesting. And it's useful to try and get that picture of what sits where. And I guess in, in some regards, 
remote and rural Scotland, life is slightly easier because the three tiers are much more clear cut. You know, we have our, our road crews, we have our basics responders filling in around that yellow response. And then if we do need a red team, well, A, it's going to be a long wait and B, it's going to be a helicopter coming up. Exactly. And and you're right, the further away you get, I guess, from the central belt, unfortunately, and I always feel like I'm slightly saying a bad word when I say the central belt, my Orcadian roots really make me resent the idea that everything should be in the middle. So forgive me. But you're right, the more remote and rural that you get, the more challenging that gets and the more disparate those groups of patients become. What sort of jobs are likely to fall into the patterning that's going to make you think, oh, this could be a useful job for you and your colleagues to attend? Yeah, sure. So predominantly, I mean, although we are managed and greatly supported and funded by the Scottish Trauma Network, the network is realistic that there isn't enough major trauma out there for us to be endlessly running back and forth to terrible traumatic incidents. And so what we tend to do is we tend to see more serious or more complex cases from the whole gamut of emergency calls that come through. So we see a lot of cardiac arrests, for instance, but what we also see is a lot of peri-arrest patients. We see a lot of patients where pain management is particularly important. So burns, for instance, we see a lot of. We deal with a lot of entrapments. We deal with a lot of motor vehicle incidents. We deal with a lot of serious assaults, particularly serious head injuries. And really the group of patients that we start to, to pick up are patients whereby we can start making an intervention pre-hospitally, which normally we would have had to wait till we arrived at the ED to deliver. And by delivering those interventions here pre-hospitally, we can kind of foreshorten their care time in the ED. So as an example, for instance, there's lots and lots of data out there about when you get your anesthetic, if you're critically injured. And, you know, your listeners, I'm sure will be very familiar with this idea. But all of the data says that if you're going to need an anesthetic post-trauma, the sooner you get that, the better your outcome is. And predominantly... That's because there's a bit of kind of bedding in that happens every time a new team establishes themselves with a patient. So when you arrive at a treble nine call, you know, there are lots of things that we all do when we first turn up on scene. We think about PPE. We talk about the people who are already there. We get a bit of a handover. We make a bit of a plan and we enact that plan and then we move on. Now, if we take a, an injured patient then, Uh, through that whole journey, the ambulance crew will arrive and do that. And then we'll move that person to the ED. And there'll be another episode of kind of bedding in where we do a handover, we clock the patient in, we re-examine the patient, we order some imaging, we call anesthetics down, we get in touch with the surgeons, all of these things have to drop in place. But if we can start consolidating some of those interventions and having them done pre-hospitally by a team who are already bedded in, then by the time you get to the hospital, there's less bedding in to do, and as such, the care that they get is better and faster. So as an example, we've spoken lots about sort of major trauma, and we've spoken about resuscitation and peri-arrest patients. One of the things that we actually see quite often is moderate limb trauma. So by moderate limb trauma, broken lower legs, displaced ankles, displaced wrists, nasty dislocations, all of these things. And one of the reasons why we can bring some real assistance into that picture 
is because firstly, we carry ketamine and we are comfortable with the idea of, of sedating a patient to manipulate a limb back into an appropriate position. But secondly, because an awful lot of our training involves working in the emergency department and seeing these patients come through resus, you know, come through the anesthetic room, then we get a bit more of a picture as to how we can start delivering some of those interventions before we arrive at the hospital. So we're recording this mid-February. The snow outside my window has just melted, but we have just come out of 10 days of really heavy snow down the East Coast, and it's been a sledging apocalypse. So an awful number of my colleagues have been seeing lots and lots of nasty displaced tib fibs, for instance. And typically with some morphine and some entonox, we could probably hold that limb in a, in a fairly kind of comfortable position. We could splint it as best we can, but actually with some ketamine, with some additional midazolam and with a bit of an understanding of sedation and limb reduction, we can come out and reduce that limb appropriately, splint it up. And so when that patient arrives in the ED, their time, their bedding in time is reduced because we don't have to go through that process of, right, let's get them into the anesthetic room. Let's think about how we're going to run the sedation. Let's get the staff in together to make sure that we can pull it so we can shorten off those kind of care times and improve those outcomes. And that makes good sense to my mind in terms of time to intervention. That's going to shorten that lead time to the definitive yeah, intervention. Entirely. So shortening that lead time, I think, is really important. But I think there's also a really huge patient experience point here, which is if you have a horribly displaced tib fib and we're going to have to carry you, say, off a hill or you've been out sledging and you're tangled up in a fence or something along those lines, chances are that extrication is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful regardless of how much analgesia you get. And actually, we have already started to see improved outcomes with patients who actually really don't remember being carried off the hill. You know, because of the sedation that they've received or because of the dissociation that they've received from us and because their limb is properly splinted and properly reduced. So they remember sledging, they remember crashing, and then they remember being in an ambulance and they don't have that memory of that horrible, bumpy carry down off the hill in pain and distress. <laughs> the joy is a special case. There is a, a more serious point there in that certainly we know from some of the military data that came out of Afghanistan in the last series of big conflicts is that that early pain management is crucial to avoid chronic pain and, and issues yeah, with pain entirely, longer term. Entirely. And we spoke earlier on about the, the trauma network trying to deliver care right from the point of injury all the way through to discharge from rehab and, you know, onwards into community care. So it is about really blurring those lines between you got hurt and then the ambulance service looked after you and then the ED looked after you and then surgery looked after you and then orthopedic you know, and, and on and on. And it just being the network picked you up and carried you all the way through. That's the aim. From point of injury to rehabilitation. <laughs> it does make good sense. It's So I suspect this has been quite a cultural shift for the, particularly the road crews who are not used to having an extra pair of hands in those difficult jobs between full-on red trauma and yeah yeah trauma. I, I think a cultural shift is probably pretty accurate i mean i think we've been quite spoiled in edinburgh because of the work that 3ru the the cardiac arrest management paramedics uh, have done in edinburgh over the past goodness eight years nine years ten years i'd have to get the exact date but actually within edinburgh and greater edinburgh there's been a really long history now of an additional pair of hands, perhaps with extra kit or extra skills or extra training, arriving at those more complex jobs 
and providing a little bit of extra assistance. So there hasn't necessarily been an enormous sort of readjustment from a lot of these guys as to us arriving, but certainly outside those bigger urban areas. And, you know, we spoke about rural crews previously and rural crews who have been very used to managing horrible cases on their own for a very long time. Because like you say, the red team might be coming, but it's going to be a while. And so a lot of these more remote crews from sort of urban centers have got phenomenal trauma care skills. They're really good at looking after people a long way away from help because it's what they do. All of that said, though, I think one of the, the real benefits that we as APCCs can bring, and certainly one of the biggest cultural changes that I had to take on board when I came into the role, was because we do a reasonable amount of work in hospital and working with in-hospital staff, we gain a bit more of an understanding as to what's coming next. So what does the next 24, 36, 48 hours look like for this patient? When they arrive in the ED, when they get moved to a ward, when they look at surgery, who's going to be getting surgery this afternoon rather than waiting until tomorrow? Which cardiac arrest is going to get three days of targeted temperature management versus being palliated on arrival in the department? And with that further understanding of what comes down the line, that certainly made that cultural shift on the road easier. I've certainly experienced crews where I've arrived to give them a hand. And actually the hand that I've been able to deliver is to say to patients, do you know what? We do need to take you to hospital and we need to take you to hospital because we have to answer the following questions. And certainly back when I was a paramedic, when I was just on the road and I, I wasn't working in and out of the ED, I didn't really know what the ED was going to do with my patient. I was going to take them to the ED, give them to a doctor and let the doctor figure it out and fix them, which possibly isn't the most helpful way of approaching the situation. But with that better understanding now, I think a lot of the crews are starting to acknowledge when the APCC arrives on scene, they're almost that link to the next step of care. They're almost an extension of the ED, which has come to see them to, to give them that assistance. So I think that's made the, yeah, the cultural shift, as you said, a little bit easier in some locations. I do want to dig in to look at your guys' training because I know it's been a fairly varied beast. But just beforehand, what does a normal week look like? We have a number of roles, effectively. So we are employed as part of the Scottish Ambulance Services Clinical Directorate. And so as well as doing sort of patient-facing clinical work, we also have a number of roles around developing new procedures, developing new ways of working. One of the parts of our job is spotting gaps in care and going, actually, we can come up with a solution that will fix that gap and we can then implement it. So a typical week might involve clinical shifts, clearly seeing patients. It would involve some team education. It would involve some team clinical governance working. So looking at case reviews or working together on developing extra governance. So writing new PGDs, for instance, or exploring new pieces of equipment or making links to other allied organizations. And then working at ways of embedding this role into the Scottish Ambulance Services clinical governance model as it stands on a wider basis. Because we are a pretty new role, you know, we haven't existed before. Part of this initial tranche of staff who came on, part of the, the role was made quite clear to us that, you know, this is about designing and developing this role as you go. So yeah, so a week would look at some education, some governance, and yeah, some clinical facing time. 
I was going to ask what a typical training pathway is, but my understanding is that there hasn't really been a typical training pathway, and you guys have come from a real... Yeah, entirely, entirely. And I think that's the real strength. That's quite an unusual thing, I think, within the ambulance service or within other ambulance services. Now, Scottsdale West, for instance, have really blazed the trail on this in that they've done some fantastic work in the past with saying, actually, it doesn't really matter what your registration is, as long as you're a registered healthcare professional of some nature. If you can meet the competencies and you can deliver what the role asks, then that's great. They have lots of exceptionally talented paramedics and nurses working on their team. And we also here in the Southeast have a member of our team who comes from a nursing background in as much as he has an NMC registration. But largely his clinical background is as a senior clinical decision maker in ITU. And certainly (laughs) when we were starting out in hospital if I would be on the ED floor and have to go up to ITU and ask for you know, a favor or some help or I need some equipment or something along those lines, I would name drop him as soon as I went on. Like, hi, I'm Joel. I'm from the ED downstairs. Do you know Pete? And they'd go, oh, yeah, Pete. And I go, yeah, I work with Pete. And immediately that was just like my golden key to making friends in ICU. It was fab. So, yeah, so we do <laughs> come from this really broad kind of background. But I think that's one of the huge strengths of the team is that it's about delivering the competencies and the skills that you need to have to do the job, but also reflecting on the clinical background that you've got. So we have members of our team who are hugely experienced in unscheduled primary care, for instance, and have been doing that for years and have now kind of moved on to this other slide. We have members of our team with fantastic educational backgrounds. We have members of our team with really significant academic cojones, and management history that bring an extra dimension and angle into what we do. You asked about the training. The training is really about ensuring that you meet that list of competencies. So while many of our team members come from different clinical backgrounds and different professional backgrounds, the training model and the training system is about finding ways of ensuring that everybody meets those required competencies. And that model largely takes the place of uh, a fair chunk of postgraduate study. So that's a range of education around patient assessment, um, around clinical decision making, and then you know further university and master's level education on the actual interventions and the procedures that we deliver. There's then a period of clinical observation and clinical supervision, and so delivering procedures. Um, and interventions under direct supervision, um, and then perhaps indirect supervision, and then being allowed to deliver those procedures independently. There is a range of reasonably alarming OSCEs, I think would be the the kindest way to describe them. I think thinking back, I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) describe them as reasonably alarming, but you know, we, we got through them and now they're done and that's good. And there's then to kind of wrap up the whole training package and to sign you off, there is a, a final consultant ride along. And that's typically a day with a pre-hospital consultant out on shift, going to whatever jobs come that day and spending that day really just sort of discussing the finer points of what we do and how we do it. And, you know, reflecting on the cases that we see or discussing cases that we may have seen otherwise. So for all, we come from this really mixed bag of professional and clinical backgrounds. Everybody has a unified training scheme and system that we go through which uh, ultimately I find has everybody working to similar professional and clinical standards across the country. 
That sounds pretty rigorous, but a nice way to draw all your kind of various backgrounds into a, a kind of common place. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it has to be rigorous, you know, because these are new roles that we're working in. We discussed earlier on that these roles haven't necessarily existed as widely as they currently do. And so this needs to be done properly. It needs to have some academic rigor behind it. It needs to have some proper clinical structure and stability behind it because these are new and exciting roles that we're delivering. Yeah, it's got to be done right. Fantastic. A huge fan of blending those different clinical models because every clinician is taught to think in a slightly different way. And actually the real strength is when you get a multifaceted team who all think in different ways and all have different ways of working that can really draw together and call those strengths. Yeah, bringing those backgrounds in together, bringing in different people's experience and skills into one cohesive team is just, it's so powerful. Um, It's a a really exciting way to work. Fantastic. Joel, what we're going to do is we're going to take a pause here because there's quite a few more questions I'd like to ask you, but I'm aware that we're running a little bit short on time. So what we'll do, we'll pause here and then we'll come back and pick this up sure. where we left off no problem uh, for at our all. next Great episode. Joel, thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.